Good morning. Welcome to Cultivate Church. My name is Jay. Uh, I have the tremendous opportunity of being the lead pastor here. It's really my privilege to do that, to serve this community. We have been and are continuing to be in a series that we're calling Rethink. And we are doing a little bit of a journey through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we have touched on many of the highlights throughout Mark. And we're trying to sort of hit some of those highlights throughout the book, in one book, from beginning to end, not covering everything, but covering some of the major things. Uh, And we're going to go all the way through this book and end on Easter Sunday and talk about resurrection. And John mentioned it also, we want to celebrate resurrection at the same time. And so that's why we're going to baptize some, I hope, many of you who have not been baptized yet, because it's the best way to celebrate the new life that Jesus gives all of us. And so there's only so much talking we can do about it. We'd like to show it, too. And the best way to do that is by inviting people to show uh, it through baptism. So that's what we're doing. Um, hope that this has really been a good uh, experience, this whole series for you. I've been learning a lot. We're now halfway through um, uh, the series, but also really the story of the book of Mark. It doesn't quite work out that way in terms of the chapters, but in terms of the story itself, the, the part that we're at today is really the halfway mark in the book. Uh, and so we are kind of turning a page, so to speak, and, uh, and so is the Gospel of Mark. If you're going to be following along, we're in chapter 8, starting in verse 27. It's on uh, page one, or 701. Um, in the the Bibles that are underneath the seats. Uh, You may also have a Bible on you and not realize it. It just happens to make phone calls too. Um, But you can, there's a little code in there uh, that you can scan and it'll bring you actually right to the section that we're looking at today. Uh, So I want to kind of start out with this question today. How many of you have ever uh, had somebody in your life and you thought you had that person all figured out? (laughs) you married people, you thought you had that person entirely figured out. And you think to yourself, I, I just, I know everything there is to know about this person. And then something happens, good or bad. And you think to yourself, I had no idea, right? This could go, this could go either good or bad. Sometimes we have people who we, mentally get an impression of in our mind. We think we know who they are, what they're all about, uh, what they bring to the table, and uh, then we, we get to know them a little bit deeper and we find that there is something we've missed. There is an element to them that we thought we had a handle on and it turns out they were far deeper than we anticipated. Uh, it, it could go the other way too, right? You think uh, that the person that you're dating is... Everything you ever, ever expected and wanted in a person from the opposite sex, and then you get married, and over time you realize that there is a lot more to that person than you once thought. Here's the thing. They're thinking the same thing about you, right? Uh, And that's kind of what marriage is. You learn more and more and more and more and more about the person. Um, I had kind of an experience like this. Sort of on the good side, I had a, a college perfe- professor um, by the, the name of Dr. Kleinbach. And uh, more than any other college professor in my undergraduate, I had him for more classes than anybody else. I think I had him for five classes, I was trying to recall, which is really odd in uh, the, the school that I went to. It's not like it was a tiny little school that only had a certain amount of teachers. Um, and I don't know what it was. It wasn't like that I was in love with his teaching and wanted to go back over and over again because my first impression of the guy wasn't very good at all. Um, he, he, and I don't think he's going to be listening to this, so I'm kind of free to talk about it. As a, <laughs> but the story will get better as I go, I promise. Um, just a very, very different sort of interesting guy. Um, the kind of guy that had kind of long, sort of poofy hair that was sort of up into, you know, curls on his head, kind of like an afro, and uh, had a really long beard and was gray all over, and rode his bike to to classes, to and from classes, always had his lunch on a little shelf on the back. Can you picture this? And he's riding in in his little professor coat and his tie that's sort of hanging off of his neck, and, uh, you know, riding his way into school, big, thick glasses, 
almost getting run over by cars going to and fro because everyone else is driving to class. Um, and he would always teach things like uh, sociology classes. Uh, and so it, I, as you learn a little bit more about him, he was kind of open in terms of where he'd been and what he had done. And it turned out that he was an atheist and taught from an atheistic perspective. And uh, he was a very, very difficult teacher on the front end. And I, re- I remember some of the very first tests and quizzes that I took with him. I bombed some of those things. And, and part of it is just getting to know a teacher. They're expecting one thing, and you're trying to do something else, and it doesn't quite match up what their expectations were, and so you end up failing a, a test or two. But I remember that in the process. He just seemed like such a hard teacher. Why has he got to be such a stickler? And I got this thing in my mind that he was one way, and I wanted him to be a different way. And on top of being an atheist, he was also kind of a socialist and just very kind of radical views on a lot of different things that I hadn't really thought about before. And so they were a little bit foreign to me, and I had just become a believer in Christ. And so a lot of them seemed really incompatible with what I was being taught and learning and believing myself. And so I took one class and then two classes And the more classes I took with him, the more I got to know him, because obviously you start showing up to a number of different classes, and he's going to learn your name and a little bit more about you. And so I started spending a little bit of time with him outside of classes, getting help on assignments and dropping by his office. And what I learned over time was a very, very interesting story that I had no idea about. I learned a lot about his background and what kind of made him who he was. And it turned out that he used to be a minister. He was a pastor for a very long time. And it turned out that part of what he had felt like God was calling him to do in pastoring was to go and serve in Vietnam. And so he went to Vietnam and served people as a medic in a very, very trying war. And it turned out a lot of the things that he saw over there gave him a very sour view, both of mankind and religion. And so is it? He, uh, he actually wears a howitzer shell, like the casing from a howitzer shell on his armband. I always thought that was the most morbid thing, right? Who in the world wears something like that around with them? But it was to remind him of some of the atrocities that he saw. And on the back side of that, he decided to devote his life to two things, to, to helping educate young people and to trying to come up with some kind of way of seeing the world that he felt like helped people more than the worldview that he had grown up with. And so we had all these dialogues back and forth because I was obviously coming to faith in Christ and I was coming at it from that worldview and he was coming at it from an entirely different perspective. But after those five classes and four years in college, I learned a lot more about this person than what originally met my eyes. And I grew to respect the guy, disagree with him on almost everything, but, <laughs> but really respect him. And had a a lot of great conversations with him and learned a lot from him. Um, More than meets the eye, right? I thought I had a perspective on somebody, and it turned out that they were far more interesting and deeper and more engaging and uh, and had a lot more life experience than I anticipated. Um, Here's the thing. Jesus works a little bit of the same way. If you were to go out on the street today in Voorhees, Cherry Hills, surrounding area, and ask people, who is Jesus, uh, to, let's say, 100 people, you're probably going to get 101 answers, right? Uh, He was a great moral teacher. He was a prophet. Uh, He was a figment of your imagination, right? He he didn't exist. Uh, He was, uh, I don't know, kind of a wimp and a pushover, a little bit of a hippie, maybe. Um, somebody who died for what he believed in. You're going to find all of these answers from various people. Some are going to say he's God. Some are going to say he's not. Some are going to say he's somewhere in between. Everyone, or at least most people, still today in America have some kind of impression of who Jesus is. And all of us do too, actually. So the question is for us, are we seeing him as he really is, In other words, like my story about my college professor, are we getting to know him for a long enough period of time, having our experience of who he is shaped by him and what he has to say about himself? Or are we leaving it at a certain level and saying, yep, I know everything there is to know about Jesus, time to move on to something else? 
And the disciples actually are faced with this same question. So we are now halfway through Mark, and they get to a certain point, and Jesus takes them something because he wants to see exactly what they think about who he is now that they've had a chance to experience him for a little bit. So we're going to pick it up in verse 27. It says this, Jesus and his disciples went onto the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do the people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. So get the picture here. They have been traveling, ministering, teaching, doing all this stuff, uh, on the go all the time, feeding people, healing people, casting out demons, doing all this stuff. And, and now it seems like they're finally able to take somewhat of a break and get away from the crowds. And Jesus takes these disciples, his inner core of people, about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee up to an area called Caesarea Philippi. And it had been an area that was renamed. It used to be called something else, but it was named after uh, the Caesar, the king of Rome. So he takes them to this place that has been named after the king of the day, and he says, I want you to say, who are the people saying that I am? Who, Who are people... Now that we've had a chance to live together for a bit of time, what is going on in people's minds? How do they interpret who I am? It's very interesting because the story right before this one was one where Jesus actually healed a blind man. And suddenly he could see, right? And the parallel is now Jesus is going to say, can his disciples see? Are people seeing him for who he is? Or are they seeing him just at a surface level? And so the disciples give this answer that it's one of the prophets. So at the same time, we are supposed to reflect, if we're reading along with Mark, how do we see him? What is our interpretation of him? How do we understand him? Now that we've seen Jesus calm the storms and walk on the waves and feed 20, 25,000 people, what do we make of him? reality is that the disciples have seen a lot, right? They have seen him do incredible things. I would say the application is this. For you in your life, if you've been walking with Jesus, what have you seen him do? How have you seen him work in your life? What have you seen him heal you of? How have you seen his power and his glory displayed in your life? How have you seen his forgiveness wash into your life and cleanse you of past things that you've done, maybe current things that you still struggle with, and yet you bring those things to Jesus and his forgiveness just washes over you and you think to yourself, thank you, God. What has he shown you in your life? Because the thing is, these guys have been walking with Jesus for some time, and he has shown them a lot of stuff. And and by showing him some stuff, the response should be that they see him for who he is. Another way to put it would be this. The more Jesus reveals himself to you, the more your response to him should be to love and to worship him. So as Jesus reveals, your response is to love, follow, and worship him. So what has he shown you? How has he revealed himself to you? And are you, in response, loving, worshiping, growing in your devotion to him? See, so many times as Christians, we get a little bit of Jesus, right? We, we get to a certain point in our relationship with Jesus. We think we understand who he is. We think we've known all there is to know about him. And then we get bored with him. And we think, there must be something else out there that I'm missing. There must be someone else out there that can fill the rest of my life because Jesus is, I understand, my ticket to heaven. I've got some other stuff going on in my life, and so I need something else to kind of fill that space too. Sometimes churches fall into this same gap, right? They get enamored with Jesus to a certain point, and then they need to fill up the rest. And they think, in order to not 
become irrelevant and boring. We need to be more creative. We need to do more programs. We need to have a better pastor. We need to do, 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 and be, be, be. Here's what I would submit to you. If you are finding Jesus bored, it's because that you haven't seen the revelation of who he is enough. If you've found yourself saying implicitly, maybe you don't say it out loud or even try to, to think it to yourself, but if you've got to a certain point and you think, Jesus can only take me so far, my encouragement to you would be to look again because you're missing the whole picture. And that is the same thing that he's coming to these guys with. So he turns the question on them. It goes from who do others say that I am to who do you say that I am? He says, but what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. In other words, he, he presents the question to his disciples, and I would submit that it's the same question that Jesus submits to all of us. Because at some point in our lives, we have been presented, if you're here this morning, you are being presented, If you're listening to this on podcast, you are being presented with the reality of who Jesus is. And so none of us have the opportunity to say, well, I never got the opportunity to to actually say who he is. We have been given that opportunity. And so all of us need to ask ourselves the same question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who is it that I say he is? And Peter's response is, you are the Messiah. In Greek, it would be, you are the Christ. Those terms are synonymous. If you were to think of it another way, he would say, you are the king. So the the context is this. Just as they had gone through healing the blind man and he had seen, he's asking his disciples, do they see? Do they see who he is? And Peter's response is telling. He says, you're the Messiah. What that means is, in in Hebrew, it's, it's you are the anointed one. And if you kind of roll back the the clock in in the the Bible and go back and look at where that term came from, it was a term that was originally applied to a guy by the name of David. We talked about him a little bit last week. David was uh, the first good king of Israel. Turned out he was really the only good king of Israel. And he had been anointed, and God had called him, you are my anointed one, which is another way of saying Messiah. And ever since David's rule, they have had wave after wave, succession after succession of bad kings, and they went from bad to worse. And so this belief started to permeate around Israel and the surrounding areas. We need somebody else who is anointed by God to be a new king, to rule over this area, to bring justice to the nations. We need a new David. And and God, even in the scriptures through the prophets, began talking about an anointed one who was to come. And this had reached, really, by Jesus' day, a fever pitch. Is the Messiah going to come in our generation? Is it going to happen for us? Because we need a king because things aren't going so well for us. And so Jesus takes them away, and he says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, You are the Messiah. You are the king. So this phrase, don't tell anybody, it's been coming up a lot, right? If you've been reading along in Mark, you realize that this phrase has come up at least eight times by now. The reason is because Israel already had a king. Peter has just proclaimed the fact that Jesus is the new king that was supposed to come. You think that would put Jesus in the crosshairs of anyone in particular? I think it would. So have you been asking yourselves why Jesus is saying, look, I've done a lot of stuff, don't tell anybody. I've healed you, don't tell anybody. I've walked on the water, don't tell anybody. The reason is because if that caught wind in the people that had the power, Jesus is going to die. It turns out he does, but he wants to do it on his timing and not theirs. And so he, he says, you are the Messiah. Now, understand, Jesus is the Messiah. And so What Peter is thinking to himself at that point is that Jesus is the new David. And so if you are the new David, if you are the king, there are three particular things that you are about to do. 
Every Messiah had to do three things. And those three things were this. They needed to cleanse or rebuild the temple that was in Jerusalem. They needed to be able to defeat the enemies that were threatening God. And in that day, it was the empire of Rome. And they needed to be able to bring God's justice to the world in a fresh way. And so when Peter is saying, you are the Messiah, he's thinking in his mind, you are going to accomplish these three things, and we're here to help you do it. I'm giving you a little bit of the background here because there's a lot going on in this story that you need to be aware of in order to understand what's actually happening here. So he says to to Jesus, you are the Messiah. You're going to accomplish these three things. But this is where the story changes, right? Because Jesus doesn't meet their expectations. In fact, he gives them a different picture of what the Messiah is going to be like. It's not one that they expected. He says this. Then he began to teach them. Meaning, Mark is saying here, Something new is about to take place. He had been teaching them for a long time up until this point, right? But yet Mark makes a point to say he is going to teach them now. It's sort of like advanced class. You guys have gotten basic algebra. Now we're going to put it to work, right? We're going to go to the next level, and I'm going to see if you're really tracking with me this entire time. In other words, to say it would be, you've called me king. Now let me tell you what it means to be the king. So he says this, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. That's not the right picture, right? That's not what we anticipated. That's not the king that we wanted to serve. Someone who suffers and is rejected and is killed. And it says he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You see what's going on here? Jesus is not meeting Peter's expectations. Peter just went out on a limb and said, you're the king. Jesus says, you're right, I'm the king, but here's where I'm going. And Peter goes, wait a second, that's not what I signed up for. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus turned, looked at his disciples, and he rebuked Peter in front of them. He says, get behind me, Satan. Satan's another way to say accuser. Satan is the one who comes and accuses the saints. And so he says, get behind me, accuser. And he said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This whole thing is the first time in the next few chapters, first of three times that Jesus predicts his own death. And what he says to him is, look, instead of cleansing the temple, I am going to be defiled by suffering. There's a bit of a different picture, right? Instead of conquering the enemies of God, I'm going to be killed by them. Instead of bringing justice to the world, I'm going to be rejected by the world. How is that for a king? Who wants to follow? Doesn't sound like it's going so well at this point, right? If you were to hit the pause button on the movie, you'd be saying, things are just not going right. This doesn't seem quite right. Imagine hearing this for the first time. You have followed after Jesus this entire time. You've been in the boat, watched him calm waves. You've been in the boat watched him take a stroll across water. You've been amongst 20,000 people and seen Jesus feed all of them with a Batman lunchbox. (laughs) This guy's got something different going on about him, right? Unlike anyone they've ever seen before, they're excited, they're anticipating, they're they're saying, yeah, we're going to conquer God's enemies, we're going to clean the temple, Jesus is going to be king, and I'm going with him. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going to lose. I'm going to lose. I'm going to submit myself to death. I'm going to be suffering. I'm going to be rejected. Can you imagine? Impossible, Jesus. Don't you know how powerful you are? And yet he tells them this just the same. 
This, this would be a little bit like a coach saying to his team, okay, ready, guys? We're going to go out, and we're going to let them run up the score like you've never seen before. And that's going to lead to us winning. I don't know about you, but unless that were Bill Belichick, I wouldn't trust that coach to save my life. <laughs> and I have my doubts about him now, actually. <laughs> we're going to win by losing. That's what he's telling his team. If you're the quarterback on that team and you need to go out onto the field after that kind of pep talk, I don't know if I'm going out of the tunnel, right? That's not what I signed up for. Jesus, don't you realize we were going to conquer the world together? And yet, what, just, what does Jesus say to them? You have in mind the concerns of the world, not the concerns of God. You have in mind the interests of the world, not God's interests. You are seeing things from a human perspective. You're not seeing them from my perspective. If you're a disciple at this point, do you follow? That's a tough question, isn't it? Put yourself into the uncertainty of that moment and ask yourselves, do you follow? Now recall in your life the most uncertain of moments in your own walk with Jesus. You want to go in one direction, and yet you feel inside of you that God wants you to go in a different direction. You are presented with two paths, just as the disciples are. Do you follow Here's the big idea, and I know this is going to sound really profound and deep. What, do you think I'm being sarcastic here? I am never sarcastic. The big idea is this, to follow Jesus is to let him lead. Sounds deep, doesn't it? But think about the implications of that statement. To follow Jesus is to let him Lead. Anybody on Twitter? How hard is it to follow someone? Click. What does it mean to follow somebody on Twitter? It means I add their comments to the queue of the rest of the comments that I happen to see when I log onto my phone or onto my computer. And if I don't like those comments, I can scroll past them and find someone else's comments I do like. Right? So if Justin Bieber says something really interesting, I can retweet that comment and say, I am a follower of Justin Bieber. What in the world is wrong with me, right? <laughs> but if I don't like what Justin Bieber has to say, I can scroll past it and I can look at something else. How many of us, though, have imported that idea of following Jesus into our lives? When he's got something good to say, something encouraging, something worthwhile, something hearing, something comforting, something that gives me hope and gives me life and gives me purpose and gives me direction, I will take that nugget of truth and I will import it into my life and I will meditate on it. But when he says something difficult for me to understand, something that leads me in a direction that I don't feel like going today, and I will scroll past it, and I will look at someone else's feed. Do we do that? I don't know about you, but I've done that. I've done it a lot, actually. Followers of Jesus let him lead. And they let him lead even when it seems like he's leading us in a crazy direction. There have been times that I haven't gotten it right. Actually, a lot of times, most times. But there have been some times in my life when I have, by the grace of God, allowed the direction of God to lead me in a way that I felt was either impractical or harmful to myself or not a great spend expenditure of my time and energy and effort. But I've been long, walking with him long enough to know that those times that he's led me to places where I didn't want to go, 
It was actually for my good. And it's for your good. And so I would encourage you, when you see the feed of Jesus pop up on your Twitter account that you follow, not just in a I'll take it in mind sort of way, in a I will take it into my life kind of way and I will let it permeate who I am kind of way. Even when I expect it to go in a different direction. See, the disciples, they wanted something else. They wanted Jesus to conquer the world through military conquest. They wanted him to display all the power that he had shown them and to direct it onto God's enemies to accomplish the ends that they wanted for their lives. You can hear it in Jesus in Peter's response. Because the implication is if Jesus is going to be the Messiah, the king who rules over Israel, who's his first in command? It's Peter. And so for Jesus to say, look, I'm going to die, (laughs) it's messing with Peter's dreams, isn't it? Those of us who have been followers of Jesus long enough know for certain that Jesus messes with our dreams too. Things that we have pictured for our lives, places that we have pictured us going. There has come a time in our life when Jesus says to us, I want you either to follow me or follow that dream, and we have to make a choice. But the encouraging thing is that the dream that Jesus has for us is always better than the one that we had for ourselves. It turns out that those dreams that he has for us are more true than any dream that we've conjured up for our own lives. That's the truth. Because think about where Jesus is about to lead them if they're willing to follow, to death. And they know it now. But now think of what he accomplishes through it. Instead of cleansing the temple, he cleanses our lives of everything that we've ever done wrong, everything that we've ever said, everything that we've ever been guilty of. Through his death, we find cleansing. Not only does he defeat the enemies of God, but he defeats all enemies that we've ever encountered, the most important ones being sin, Satan, and death. He defeats each of them. How does he do it? He does it through his death. And not only does he bring justice to Israel through his death and his resurrection, he promises that he is going to bring God's justice to the entire world. One day, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make everything right in this world. God's kingdom, which exists on heaven, is going to come to earth. That's what Jesus prays. And so every sin, every tear, every fear, every shame that we've ever experienced in life, Jesus will one day wipe all of those things away. Do you think Jesus' direction for where he's headed is better than what the disciples had in mind? Yes. In every way, right? In every way. Jesus is leading them where they need to go, not where they want to go. He's accomplishing more through his death than he ever could through his life. But they don't see it yet. And the reason is because they want Jesus to be a king that lives up to their expectations, not the king that he is. I would press you with this question. Where are you doing that? Where are you and I doing that? Jesus is trying to be one kind of king in our life to lead us where we need to go, and yet we're resisting in order for him to be the king that we want, not the one that he is. So what does it look like to follow Jesus and where he's leading? That is a great question. Thank you so much for asking. And uh, turns out that Jesus tells us. I love when he does that. Verse 34, he says, Then he called the crowd to him, to him along with his disciples and says this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for somebody to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? And who could give and what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. The context is this. Jesus says, you want to follow me where I'm going? Then you need to be able to deny yourself. Deny the dreams that you have for your life. Deny the self-centeredness that we so often cling to, even after we come to Jesus to follow him. Deny the direction that we feel is right for ourselves. Deny all of that stuff and then take up your cross and follow me. What is he talking about there? The cross was an instrument of of crucifixion. Jesus wasn't the first person to be crucified and he wouldn't be the last. Crucifixion was known in that day as the worst corporal punishment you could ever conceive. And there were two elements to it. There was a physical element to the cross, but there was also a reputational element to the cross because they would erect these things on the outskirts of town and when you passed in and out of the city, you would go by all these crosses with people who had been crucified on them. And the thing that would fill your mind the most when you saw that person is, what a shame. You would be thinking to yourself that that person was shamed by society and by God. They were rejected in every way. And people would pass by crosses and spit on them, even after the people were dead. Why? Because that person is shameful in every way. And so Jesus, anticipating his own death, says, you want to be able to follow me? You're going to have to deal with some rejection yourself. Because to take up a cross is to take on yourself the rejection that comes with following me. There will come a time when I say go here, the world says go there, and if you're going to choose to go with me, you're going to be scorned by someone in your life. That's what he's saying to them. But it's the only way to follow me. I think ultimately Jesus says this. There are two kinds of people in their lives, in life. There are those that use their lives to build a kingdom for themselves. And there are those who use their lives to build a kingdom for Jesus. And you can't always tell those people by the label that they call themselves. And so there are, unfortunately, many, many people who claim the name of Christ, living, breathing, experiencing life, out there today, claiming to follow Jesus, and yet building a kingdom for themselves and not him. Peter himself, up to this point, felt like he was building a kingdom for Jesus. Who is he really building a kingdom for? Himself. He's looking at his own desires, his own dreams, his own expectations, and he's seeing Jesus as the ticket to get him there. I, uh, a couple of years ago, um, I discovered, my, my parents were uh, vacationing down in Myrtle Beach, and uh, I decided to, to go down and, uh, and spend some time with them. So I, I took a, a plane down there, and then we were going to drive back. One of the things that we were going to do while we were in Myrtle Beach is take in a, a minor league baseball game. And uh, I found out that when we went uh, down there to go to this baseball game, there was a baseball player who was playing by the name of Jeff Francoeur. Anybody ever heard of him? You've got to be a really good baseball fan to be able to hear of him. Um, so so we, we go down, and, uh, and, and we go to the ballpark, and we go to the will call window, and they go, oh, Francoeur, are you family members of Jeff? And my parents, I will never forgive them for this, say, no, we're not. <laughs> I'm going, what are you thinking? You know, and it turns out that he wasn't even playing that day. He was, he was rehabbing, so he wasn't in the stadium. Nobody would have ever known. We would have come in and had the, the royal treatment for the day, 
yeah, we're, you know, second cousins, twice removed. Uh, <laughs> we would have had all the luxuries of, of being on the inside of that team, right? As much as you can be for the Myrtle Beach Pelicans. But, <laughs> but it turned out that, that he was a pretty decent player. And so he made, shortly after that, he made his way up through the, the minor league ranks and started playing for the Braves. And I remember once he got to the, to the major leagues, and so as, as soon as I found out that there was a player by the name of Jeff Francoeur, I am like rooting beyond rooting that this guy is going to turn out to be like a perennial all-star and make it into the Hall of Fame. Because I'm thinking to myself, finally, people are going to be able to recognize and say and pronounce my last name. <laughs> no, yeah, no more Francoeurs and no more Francois and no more that. I'm thinking, we, I've got it made. People are going to start to be able to understand and recognize my name. And it's, it actually started to happen in a few places. People who were really big baseball fans would say to me, are you related to Jeff Francoeur? And I would say, absolutely. Are you kidding me? We go way back. I taught him how to... Never mind. <laughs> but the entire time I wanted him to do well, it had nothing to do with him, right? It had everything to do with me. I had selfish ambitions for him doing well in his career for my own gain, for my own motivation, so that others would be able to recognize me, not recognize him. Peter's doing the same thing with Jesus. And so the question I think he would ask, that being God, all of us this morning is, what is our motivation when it comes to following Jesus? Do we do it because we want to look spiritual in the eyes of other people? Or are we doing it because we love Jesus and we want to follow him and wherever he goes, we want to go too? Regardless of the dangers that it presents, regardless of the reputation that I may be damaged by following him in, what, what is your motivation? And have you checked that motivation recently? Because it's the question that he asks all of us. So how do you know if your motivation's right? Here's how I think you know. When you are presented with an opportunity that forces you to make a decision between following Jesus and having a result which gives you more fame, more recognition, or less trials in life, that you choose Jesus over that. Want some examples? So, in business, uh, you may be presented with an opportunity to do something for a boss, and he says, I want you to do it in a pretty immoral way. I want you to fudge the numbers. I want you to come up with a, a new direction. I, I don't want you to tell your coworkers or those who are under you about it. But if you do it according to the way I say, I will promote you. I'll give you a raise. I'll give you a new title. I'll give you a new office. You will be on your way up in this company if you do this for me. That is an opportunity for us to say, who is it that I really serve? If you've been presented with the opportunity in a relationship and your boyfriend is pressuring you to sleep with him because he says to you, if you do then things are going to go well between us. If you don't, I am going to ruin your name in school, and you know it. He's going to call you the worst of the worst, and he's going to spread that lie around all these people. What do you choose? Opportunity for us to choose Jesus, to place our trust in him, to find our worth in him, to find our identity in him, to know that he loves us, and so it doesn't matter what anyone else says we don't have to have fear over it because we know that God has things in control and he leads us to places that are better for us than what I could choose for myself. Maybe uh, you have a coworker who just loves to gossip and you found that you can create a relationship with this person, but it's centered around gossiping about other people. And if you didn't gossip around other pe about other people, then you wouldn't have a friendship. 
And if you didn't have that person's friendship, you would be more alone at work or more alone in your neighborhood. And so you succumb to it. You passively allow that to happen for them to talk about other people in a negative way. Why? Because through it, you gain a friendship that you wouldn't have otherwise had if you said, no, this must stop. That is an opportunity for you to follow Jesus and not follow the way that would lead to your own fame or your own comfort. That is the opportunity that Jesus gives to his disciples, and that is the opportunity that he gives to us all. So if you find yourself saying at one point or or another in your life, I thought that by following Jesus, my life would be blank. And let me submit to you, you are in it for the wrong reason. Because whatever that blank is, Jesus has a better thing in mind for you than the thing that you have for you. Ultimately, what Jesus says is that every attempt of mine to save my own life rather than trusting in Jesus will result in me losing my life rather than having it. And so the big idea is this. To follow Jesus is to let him lead. Why should I let him lead? Because he'll lead me to where I need to go, not where I'd like to go. Paul talks about it this way when he says this in uh, Galatians 6.14. May I never boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Where do you need to go? Where do I need to go? Ultimately, we need to go to the cross to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow Jesus there. Not just in some Jesus is my ticket to the afterlife sort of way. All of us, at some point in time, we need to understand for ourselves what it means for Jesus to take the fall for us and to lead us to the cross. To watch him with our own eyes be flogged and suffer and to know that that suffering is a result of the sin that I've caused. We need to see him be raised up onto that cross, being crucified and his life drained from him, knowing that it's I'm the one who placed him there. We need to see him die and understand that it's his death that takes my death away. That he died in my place for my sin. And because of that, and because of the fact that he rose again after three days, I have the opportunity for new life in him. Have you followed him there? Because let me say this, if you haven't followed him there, you haven't followed him at all. That's where it begins. That's where Jesus is taking his disciples, and that's where Jesus is taking us. So I would encourage you, even as we're getting ready to worship together and respond to what God is doing in our lives, even as we're coming up and taking communion, which is the symbols of that death, his body which was broken for us, his blood which was shed, that those elements are given as a reminder to us of one who took our place. And as we eat of them, we realize in our lives that in every way, we have been set free. And folks, when you are free, then you have the motivation like no other point in your life to make decisions which Devote yourself more to Jesus and less to your own dreams. The greater you see Jesus in your life, the more those situations that come along, they won't be such a big deal. Why? Because you love Jesus. And you know that he has a good plan for you. And you will follow him anywhere he takes you. Because he's good. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much that you are the king who is and not the king who we'd like you to be. 
there are so many times that we have dreams for ourselves and our ambitions, where we'd like to go. And, uh, and you come along and you mess with those things. But you never do it out of hate. You never do it out of jealousy. You never do it out of spite. You always, always do it because you are good and you want good for us. So I, I pray, God, that that truth would wash over us. And even now, if there are situations that we are being dealt with in our lives, dealt to us, and we are feeling that pressure, God, which direction should I go? I have a sense of what would honor you, but I'm feeling the pressure to go in another way. God, that you would remind us anew that you give grace to us in the moment to overcome those trials. And you give us our, your spirit, which will move us into the direction that you'd most like us to go. Help us to trust you, God. Enough to follow you into even difficult decisions. So if we've been delaying a decision in our life because we don't trust you enough, God, help us to see it for what it is, see who you, you for who you are, and to, and to follow you wholeheartedly. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would back up those decisions with your grace and that all of us would discover that you are far more powerful and far more good than we anticipated. Help us to see you in a deeper way and to see you for who you are. In Jesus' name.